two weeks ago, we looked at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And there were four principles of personal evangelism that were found in that passage. Uh, we talked about going south. Uh, in other words, going to places in our life that are outside our own comfort zone. And uh, go to places where it might look a little bit formidable, but it's usually in that place that God wants to do something amazing. And my second point, of course, was feeding into that. And that was about when you go, you will see fruit sprout despite a uh, desert environment in front of you there. And, the th- and then also the, we looked at the Philip's way of engaging. And the principle we gained was to merge into the spiritual conversations that are already happening around you. They are happening fast and furious. And it might not be all godly stuff. There's lots of people talking about what they see. Ever since Charmed came out on TV some time ago, all, every adolescent talks about the spiritual realm. You know, um, you know, ever since Twilight has become such a big thing, that's another matter again. Uh, you know, there's different supernatural themes that come up in people's conversations. Uh, but also, you know, people of an older ilk have had experience with a load of different things out there which are, quite frankly, spiritually dangerous. So if we can merge into those conversations and see where they're at, we know where to pick up. And that's what we found with this Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading the Bible at precisely the right time. Another man was there to explain it to him. And finally, the last principle was to go and do what Philip did. Send responsive new believers away rejoicing from what they've heard and experienced from their interaction with us. You know, if we want to represent Jesus people should be able to walk away from us with at least a smile on their face after they've interacted with us and we've communicated our faith. You know, if we've communicated our faith right, and if we've been evangels or good news bearers, bearers of glad tidings, then there should be a bit of a smile, a smile of either rejoicing because they've received the message, or a smile that has been at least given them a bit of hope. You know, if they walk away scowling or angry we might have to modify our approach a bit. So uh, that's where we're going. If, look, that message, all the others are available for download. <laughs> Even though, you know, look, I know we don't all do that. However, we, um, about 250 people have, or well, there's been 250 downloads so far off our website and stuff, which is pretty amazing. People are listening online, so that's pretty awesome. Now Luke's account now takes us into a new chapter in the life of the church. So if you've got your Bibles, and it's really good to bring them, and if not, there should be some under your seats, put your thumb in Acts chapter 9 today, and uh, we'll pick that story up shortly. But we're going to give you a bit of backstory as we go here. So Acts chapter 9, and let me give you the backstory. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus made a really massive public statement. And this is what he said, Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matter of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty big statement given the the rules that the Pharisees kept at the time. But it was with this statement that Jesus put a religious group called the Pharisees on notice. Throughout the Gospels we read of dozens of interactions between Jesus and this group of religious leaders and each time would follow a similar pattern. The Pharisees would attempt to catch Jesus in his words and they'd look for a way of of trying to charge him and trip him over in what he would say and trick him into blasphemy or trick him into saying bad things. But each time, Jesus was on to them and he only grew stronger in his influence and his reputation because of the way he handled those situations. It ended up up taking bribery, uh, deceit and, and manipulation for the Pharisees to finally catch their guy and have him executed. And with that decisive act, they were certain that Jesus and his influence had been stopped. 
But then the resurrection happened. And for another 40 days, the place was in an uproar as Jesus revealed himself to hundreds of people before ascending to heaven. Then we have a short lull. Then the day of Pentecost. And all of heaven breaks loose on that day. The Pharisees and the religious leaders had their hands full containing and silencing one guy when Jesus was there. So you can only imagine how hard it was when they had a whole church to contend with all of a sudden. Literally thousands of people are becoming followers of Jesus. But of course that wasn't without scrutiny. And, the, and we see in Acts chapter 5 that opposition is, pr- is very much present to what the church is all about. We see the Sanhedrin, the religious high court, has gotten ho- involved. But the influence they once had where, where they were able to kill off Jesus is now diminishing because their number is getting divided. It even prompts a respected Pharisee and rabbi to speak up in the church's defense. We read about this in Acts chapter 5. It says this, A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Sage advice from a great rabbi. Soon after this, we begin reading about an emerging young Pharisee named Saul. He's around 15 years younger than Jesus was. So he's an ambitious young adult at the time of this particular portion of scripture. And he's been quietly climbing the ladder within the Pharisee organization. He has sat faithfully under the yoke of the influential rabbi Gamaliel, who was the one who spoke up at the Sanhedrin. We just read about him. And Saul is now becoming the golden boy of the Pharisaical movement. But we also see here that he's clearly not impressed with the things that he's seeing. He hates what the church stands for. And Luke introduces us to him here as a man who is hostile to the gospel. He's not just making fun of his workmates. He's holding the coats of his peers and openly consenting while they put believers like Stephen to death. But it's clear his radical opposition is not being shared by everyone anymore. Some of their number are becoming believers themselves. And on the surface, it looks like Saul's own rabbi in Gamaliel looks like it's he's gone he's gone soft as well there's a rot forming within his fraternity and he's determined not to stand by and he's just going to he's not going to stand by and he's not going to watch this happen it's time for this young energetic zealous and fanatical pharisee to get proactive for his cause and even for his god that's the backstory now we pick up our text in acts chapter 9 let's start at verse 1 Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, persecute me. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him much how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Wow. Now, in Acts chapter 8, we read how Saul sought to destroy the church. In the wake of Stephen's uh, death and his martyrdom, Saul's next act was to go about trying to destroy the church. That was his motivation. In the Greek, this was a strong word for Luke to use here. It was limanomai, which means to ravage the body the way a wild beast would. That's the motivation of, of he's trying to take the body of Christ and rip it apart like a wild animal. The animalistic theme continues in verse 1 of our text today. The breathing of murderous threats here mentioned in the Greek was akin to the panting and snorting of a wild beast. It's like, you know what I mean? Luke is presenting him here as a really hostile and angry guy when it comes to the claims of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 26.11, as he shares his own journey, Saul describes himself as having been in a raging fury against Jesus' followers. You see, in his view, these followers of Jesus are wrong Jesus could not possibly be the person his followers say he is it goes against everything he's heard in his life and he's seemingly too set in his own ways to accept that he might be the one in the wrong here two years have passed between the stoning of Stephen and the text we read today and in that two years Saul has dedicated himself to tearing the church around Jerusalem apart In his testimony in chapter 26, he shares that he was intent on making every believer he could find renounce their faith and even blaspheme. We're talking here about some of the most intense persecution that the church had seen up to that point. Now he's looking further abroad. Two years prior, Hellenistic Christians had been forced to scatter from Jerusalem. Philip did really well going into Samaria. And now Christians are seemingly everywhere. Up north in Damascus, the believers are flourishing. And Saul is able to convince the Sanhedrin to give him extradition papers to round up their Christians and bring them in to be tried and punished. Saul's cause 
is a pretty simple one. It's also a cause that is in play today. and We see it in many activists and in politicians on a large scale. And it's also found to a smaller degree within the areas of our life where unchurched people might be. Saul's cause and the cause of the world today is this. Actively resist the claims of Christ and use all necessary force to silence those that speak up for him. That's the cause in play when the Greens take the stage on the political arena. That's the cause in play when Christians get arrested and tortured in many countries around the world. It's also the cause in play when our family members intimidate us when we have big family meetings. Christmas parties are notorious for it. That's the cause in play when our workmates or our classmates or our homemates make mocking comments about what we believe. It's a cause shared by those who will do all they can to silence the voice of a Christian in their life and who respond with hostility when presented with the claims of Jesus Christ. Saul was empowered to address his hostility in a violent way. Today, for some of us, the violence and the active aggression may be absent, but under the surface, the hostility is still there. In fact, I'm deeply aware that in this room, some of us work, study, and interact with people like that. Going a bit deeper into Saul's psyche, we see that he is also an extreme case of someone who was fully satisfied with their place before God, no matter how misguided it actually is. We learned last week, the last time we met, that the idea of a suffering servant was not what the Jesus, the Jews were expecting from their Messiah. In fact, they were looking for a strong and militant end to their messianic story. And to prepare for this to occur, the Jews believed they needed to be in a place of absolute holiness in order to be found worthy of their messianic day. That's why the Pharisees introduced another 300 odd bylaws to the Mosaic law to ensure that everyone stayed squeaky clean. Saul is playing into that mindset here by opposing Christianity. To him, remaining holy also meant removing all forms of heresy and false religion. There was a lot of teaching in his day that promoted a militant view of holiness, and rabbis promoted it everywhere. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were writings that define righteousness as a man, as a righteous man is described as this way, one who bears unremitting hatred toward all men of ill repute. That was kind of the belief system of the day. In the view of the Pharisees, the teaching of Jesus fitted that bill. In fact, in Acts 26, as he shares his testimony, it's good reading later on, he explains that he was convinced that he was right to oppose the name of Jesus. And in Acts 22, he describes himself before the, his conversion as one who was zealous for, zealous for God like a good Pharisee what should be. I'm a good religious guy. Saul was convinced that his course of life was okay by God. Even though he lived in rejection of Jesus, he was convinced that his rejection was not an issue that would separate him from God in the long run. He thought his chances of making heaven his home was still set in stone and that he was a good enough man to stand when he got face to face with God. Now that's a line I've heard a lot in my lifetime so far. I'm a good person. I do good things. 
I stand for good things. My good outweighs my bad. I am not sinful enough that God would, let, would not let me into heaven. I'm satisfied with my life right now and I honestly don't think I need to have to change a thing. What could God possibly have against me? We know in Proverbs 14 that it says there's a way which seems right to a man. But what's the end of that? Death. Destruction. To these sort of people and to Saul himself, their way seemed right for now. Bringing Jesus into the discussion for people who think this way is actually a difficult thing to do. Paul, having gone through that journey, puts it well in his epistles. In 1 Corinthians 1, he calls the message of Christ crucified as a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And in Galatians 5.11, he mentions the cross as a cause of offense to some out there. When people have that hard-headed self-satisfaction, the idea that one needs the work of the cross to make things right can be a truly offensive thing for them to have to contemplate. Jenny and I had a family member very close to us who was definitely one of those men. He was right in his own sight and for a number of years proclaimed his way to be true and the cross to be an offence. I'm not bad enough for Jesus to die for me was the statement he made. The cross means nothing for a person like me. I'm fine the way I am. Burning question right now is this. How do guys like that come to Christ? How do people like that come to Jesus? I'm hoping that around about now some of you are thinking, I work, I study, and I even live with people like that. Give me the keys to seeing them change. Let me find some principles out of the text as we keep reading here. Let's see what is going down with Saul. And let's see if any of this is transferable to the situations we face today. Principle one, and I've only got two today, I'm going to be short. Understand that Jesus is far more involved than you think. He's deeply involved. And we see that in this text very clearly. Jesus is involved. As we go into verse 3, we see that a light comes out of nowhere. And Saul is knocked to the ground and he's blinded. He's finally brought to a place where he is rendered completely vulnerable and defenseless. And then comes a voice from heaven. And for a guy like Saul, this is a massive idea to unfold. The great rabbi Gamaliel, would have, when training Saul, would have often spoke of the voice of God. Saul would have been taught to understand that if a voice came out of heaven, it would be none other than the one true God. The one true God of Israel. In Saul's reasoning, this voice on the Damascus road could be nothing else but God speaking to him, given the way he had been trained. With that in mind, the question the voice asks him takes him completely by surprise. Why do you persecute me? Hang on. 
How Saul, how would he respond to this? You, as the voice from heaven, are the one true God. And you are calling me your persecutor. How on earth can that be? I'll admit, I am engaging in persecution right now. But it's not at you, God. Jesus' next statement cements the peril Saul is suddenly in. The statement is this, I am Jesus, the one true God and subject of your persecution. I am, the great I am statements, Jesus. See, Jesus steps into the picture here and makes himself known to Saul. He takes a supernatural step that causes him to sit up and take notice and steer him into a path that acknowledges the validity of Jesus but also his need of him. The next statement Jesus makes shows that he's been at work in Saul's heart for quite some time. It's not the NIV but it shows up in the King James and a few other versions and Saul talks about this in his own testimony in Acts 26. But the next statement that he said is it's hard to kick against the goads. Not impossible, but it's incredibly hard. The goad Jesus spoke of here was a tool a farmer used to poke and prod a young bull into a predetermined path. Today, put the batteries in, load up the cattle prod. It was a painful thing to fight against. And even the wildest of bulls learn to avoid its painful prod, some longer than others. Who's ever worked with cattle with a prod? Who are the farmers here? Come on. How hard is it? Do they eventually learn their lesson? Takes a while? What's Jesus saying here? Jesus was at work in the heart of Saul, poking away at him. It may have started way back when he began hearing about the Nazarene called Jesus in the temple one day. When Jesus was crucified at 33, Saul would have been about 18 or so. And he may have even seen him in the temple courts. We know Saul was there when Stephen was martyred. And even as that martyr lay dying, he was praying forgiveness over the people throwing stones at him. And he was close enough to witness that. That would have had a lasting impression. Over his two-year rampage thus, thus far, he would have been blown away by many who would rather face torture and even death rather than renounce their faith in this Jesus, the Nazarene. His heart would have been doing cartwheels. Another writer suggests that his outward fanatical rage was an attempt at suppressing the goads of Jesus. In fact, psychology actually tells you that fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating secret doubts. So maybe as he was getting goaded all the more, and as he was getting prodded, it was causing him to resist, and that was the fanaticism that was coming out. There's every chance he was not as convinced about his pharisaical ways as he once was. In any case, it is clear that Jesus has been initiating all contact with Saul here. He has been hard at work and looking to soften the hostile territory of Saul's heart. He's been poking and prodding and he's been steering him towards a path where he would one day say, What must I do, Lord? 
And finally, after two grueling years of Jesus' work, plus a church praying and even suffering from him, that day has finally come. See, never forget this. Jesus is the one holding the goad. No matter how hostile our unsafe friends, colleagues, relatives seem, Jesus is most definitely at work. I can encourage you this way. Keep praying. Keep believing. And know this, that their day of reckoning at the Damascus Road is coming. For our family member, when faced with his own mortality, he came around. Jesus was always at work. And there came a time where the time it came a point where the time was exactly right. Second principle is this. Once Jesus has done his work, he then gets us involved. Saul came to repentance because he was chased and goaded by Christ himself, and because a believer named Ananias was obedient. Going into verse 10, we see that a man in Damascus is engaged in prayer. He's a believer and he's in a place where Jesus is able to speak to him. How many know that's a good step of discipleship right there anyway? Be in a place where Jesus can speak. If we go to prayer with our earplugs in, it's a two-way street, that one. The Lord directs him to go to the main street of Damascus, the straight street, and locate the notorious Christian killer named Saul. And Ananias did what you and I would do without hesitation. You want me to do what? (laughs) That guy's a psycho. He hates what I represent. He hates the name of Jesus and is looking to rid the world of guys like me. You want me to go where? Do what? (laughs) The deal is this. Eventually, you and I are going to get the chance to speak into the hearts that appear hostile. And when Jesus prompts us to say something, it is without exception a result of Jesus having done something where the hostile heart has had a time of softening. You'll know it because the environment will suddenly feel different. I've seen this come out and play many, many times. We feel the nudge to speak to someone. And suddenly as I do that, I find out they've just decided to pray one day. Or saw a movie that prompted their imagination. Or they heard a song or they got a Bible verse that got their attention. It's uncanny. Something has occurred and Jesus has gotten their attention. So when Jesus goads the hostile heart, he then prompts us to go. And when we speak, we'll suddenly find that our words will resonate because Jesus has already begun saying the same thing to their heart. Ananias is described by William Barclay as one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. He, in his obedience, is a human instrument that Jesus uses to bring this once hostile beast to right standing with God and into fellowship with the church. Ananias takes some very deliberate and noble steps which were vital to the, conver- uh, the conversion of Saul. First he answers the call and he goes. 
He locates the street as Jesus prescribes and locates the subject of the vision he'd received earlier. And then he lays hands on him. And this is a picture of ministry and prayer at work here. Then he baptizes him. Baptism was and still is a mark of entering fellowship with God's people. Ananias was playing the role of a bridge builder here where he paved the way for his arch enemy of the church to become one of their number. And finally, he feeds him. He took this fellowship thing and he made it personal. He could have prayed for him, walked away. He could have baptized him and left him for others in the church to deal with. Instead, he goes one better and internets his faith journey with the faith journey of Saul. In these, four, in these few steps, we see an amazing openness in Ananias. His time, his energy, his heart and his home were all open so that one man could be reached for the gospel after Jesus had already done the softening. I'm going to come to a close and I'll invite um, 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 Pauline, if you could come, we're going to sing one more song in a moment. And if I could have a couple of stewards come and move the communion table front and centre, that would be really helpful. I know there are people in our lives which appear hostile to the gospel. Some I've heard about in this church, and others not so much. But I definitely appreciate that they're out there. What we can see here from this passage is the encouragement that things can change. Hearts can soften. Jesus is always at work in apparent hard hearts. And he's on our side. When he confronts Saul on the Damascus road, he doesn't call him on persecuting Jesus' followers. Why are you you picking on my boys? No, he didn't say that. He said, why are you persecuting me? You see, when they hit us, Jesus feels it. When they mock us, Jesus identifies with that. When we suffer, Jesus identifies with that. Jesus identifies with the suffering saints in this text. If Perth will persecute us, they by extension are persecuting Jesus himself. And we all know how futile that effort is going to turn out. So take heart. Jesus holds the goad. He's steering the path of those hostile individuals in our life. Keep praying for them, let their hearts soften. And allow yourself to be open to speak when Jesus prompts.